Catherine Nichols here with Elisa Gabbert and Isaac Butler, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. Uh, this is going to be our last episode before we go on summer break, but we'll be back in September. Uh, we need time to read some bigger books, uh, but we're very excited about those episodes. Uh, today's episode is one that we've been preparing for for a while, and we're very excited to finally be able to share. Uh, our year is 1992, and our book is The Emigrants by uh, W.G. Sebald. Um, to summarize, it's there's a, a narrator who's very similar to the author, not identical with the author, but close. Um, and he's researching and uh, understanding the lives of four people who emigrated from Germany around the time of the Second World War. Um, in a way, none of the specific details of their lives are quite they're not that important to summarize um and the way the story is told is what creates a lot of the effects that he's famous for um i think we'll describe a lot of that in our conversation so um here we go uh so lisa you just did the public space month-long reading of this book did you already know this book very well before you did that? Are you already were you already familiar with Zabel's work? I was a little familiar with it, not this book actually. Um I to my own shame and embarrassment, but not really. <laughs> um never read Zabel before last year actually and um I wrote, you know, I write up like little notes and publish them at, at the end of the year about every book that I read and I wrote in my notes, like, it, it seems ridiculous to me that I haven't read Zabal before. Like, I was mad at myself because I liked it so much. And it's so clearly kind of like the kind of thing I would like. <laughs> but I was like, ah, why did I never read this before? But it, it, that gave me this great kind of realization or revelation about reading. It was just like, wait, you can't already have read everything. Like, oh, it's, at, at some point, you just have to read stuff. And I think it was the right time for me to read him. Um like I said, I really loved it. The, the book that I read last year was The Rings of Saturn. And um, yeah, so a public space reached out to me about doing this kind of read-along event for the immigrants. And I hadn't read that one yet, but I was like, well, it loves it balls. And I would love to kind of like read one a year maybe until I get through his, uh, his catalog. <laughs> um, and yeah, this was such a different experience. To, I did read it kind of like in public and along with all these other people who are reading it. And I really liked the pacing of just reading, I think it was about 20 pages a day, which Sebald is so dense that that's a good amount. Like that gives you a good amount to think about per day. Um, but yeah, I will say it, it felt very different to kind of read it in, in public that way. I was <laughs> unfortunately quite self-conscious the whole time in a way that I don't think I would have been if I was just you know, just read it kind of purely for quote unquote pleasure. And so far as you can read, say bald for pleasure. Yeah. yeah, I, um, when I got to the end, I just started over and read it again. I read it for this podcast right now. I, I have like an audio book and then I also had a paper copy and I don't think I absorbed enough the first time and I could feel it. Like I, and then when I started over, then I, I felt like my reading comprehension was significantly higher. Yeah. Um, in a way yeah. that I, it's very like it. poetry in that way. I, I always feel when I'm reading poetry, like I want to go back to the beginning and start over, but not even at the end of the book. Like I'll get to the third poem and I'll be like, wait, 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 no, <laughs> I must've missed something. I have to go back. And um, Alice Fulton calls that recursiveness, like the recursiveness of poetry. And I feel like Zabel is very much in that zone where it seems impossible to pay enough attention. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, in part because he's, you know, littering, the book with with little light motifs it really does make you want to go back and be like wait have i seen that date before um or you know what i mean like it really it really makes you want to sort of flip back and forth to see how they um bounce off each other yeah there's a um an image at the end that when i when i got to the end and then i went back to the beginning i saw that he had echoed that image from the beginning um, it's three women at the end, and I think it's three horses at the beginning. Um, and there, there's a, a lot of those things that have different degrees of self-consciousness, I think. 
Um, like he has a sort of Nabokov figure that appears in every chapter who's like somebody chasing butterflies. Um, and then in the final uh, version of that image, it's at an event that um, was described in speak memory, um, which I think is like, it's very easy to read this as an almost artless uh, description of research that he's doing except that he's obviously composing it very artfully all the time. Did you have a feeling about what that effect is of that combination of like very composed? Yeah. I feel, I feel strange fiction? about those things to some extent. Um, less so the, the light motifs that are like dust or mist. I really noticed how much dust and mist there was. Um, and that feels sort of easily accidental or just, you know, thematic in the way that like a film can have, um, kind of visual themes like that running throughout or like a visual metaphor. Whereas like the butterfly man is so constructed, you know, like, um, it's, it's, it's so, fictive and it's it's one of those things that like forces you to question you know how much is Zabald like showing you the puppet strings um intentionally and you know to what end like I I was like I, I do want to get into this <laughs> like when you said that you you kind of didn't want to know much about Zabald I fell into this rabbit hole after I finished it where I really wanted to kind of get my chance <laughs> I wanted to get my head, my head around, like you know how how much of this is real and how much of it isn't. Partly because I was going to have to speak in front of a bunch of people right. <laughs> about him, and I didn't want to sound like an idiot. But I also wanted to know. I found that I wanted to know. That's fascinating to me. We should say to listeners, we were we were joking about this earlier that I had said that actually I I want to know nothing about Zabald whatsoever. Like I, I, I found out from Catherine that, uh, uh, his daughter was present at his death. He had an aneurysm and his daughter was there. And I was like, I don't even want to know that he has a daughter. I want to know nothing about him. And there's a weird way in which it feels to me like this mysterious totem of the 20th century has like, you know, like a uh, Venus on a clamshell. It's just like swept in and I have read it and had this experience. And in, there's a weird way in which um, I, I can get this way sometimes where with, with, with art, where I, I want it protected from the artist to some extent. And this is one of those because he's in it and because there is this kind of pretend nonfiction quality of it, right? It's like you read stuff about his writing. They're always like his fiction combines memoir and travel. He's like, I don't know that any of this happened. And I think he's like pretty upfront with like, you can't actually know if any of this happened, uh, uh, within the, te within the text of the book itself. And I want to protect that ambiguity that is present in the text personally that said for the sake of the good listeners of lit century i will ruin my enjoyment of this book and hear some stuff about sabald kitty but you know what i mean that there's a way in which the tension within the book of like how much of this is real how much of this is a fictional thing are you going to google this name although in 96 probably not are you going to alta vista this name um uh uh that is a part of what the book is doing. And so I sort of want to hold on to that effect of the book is really what it comes out to. But anyway, Zabald. Well, you're right that, you know, he might not have anticipated how easy it would be for people to research these people, but he does use real names. And the, the fact is that just 20 years later, we can easily research these people and confirm like, yes, that's actually a photo of Nabokov. Um, yes, there actually was this you know, mountain climber named Jelly who fell and then was discovered in the Alps 70 years later or however long it was. Um, like those people are real. So like that is so tantalizing. And and, right. and you could have discovered that before um, by, you know, just going to the library, I guess. And I think like the Max Ferber character is actually a composite, but was based on a real painter who's very famous. Um 
And I think at the time, like, especially if you were living in the UK, you would have recognized the details and known that that was based on uh, Frank very, Auerbach, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think he, he was um, really pushing you to do that kind of like auto fictional read. And, and also he has said in interviews that it's like, I'm trying to remember if I made up this figure or if this is just what I decided upon in my mind after reading <laughs> enough, like <laughs> of his claims, but he does tend to say like, it's by and large documentary. It's by and large non-fictional and that he kind of like massages the details. Um, and in an interesting way, it's like he adds fictive to seem more real, which is a bit paradoxical. Um, things like, like a, a good example of, of the nudge is um, that the Nagelli character is, or figure is real. That's a real person, but the mountain climber that um, Dr. Selwyn, that wasn't the Dr. Selwyn part, right? Yeah. Well, what, okay. Yeah. So Selwyn mentions that he was, you know, you had a friendship with this, this mountain climber, this mountain guide, but Selwyn the real Selwyn, according to Sebald, didn't actually name the mountain climber. So Sebald nudged it to make it Nigeli because he did have that experience of like coincidentally seeing a newspaper article about the discovery of Nigeli. Um, and so he was like, well, it just takes a little kind of leisure domain, you know, to make it the same person. Which it does. It does. Like, so it's like the, the lie that tells the truth because all of these are somebody that disappears because that's the story with the mountain climber where it's like, this is somebody that mysteriously means more to the, the living character mm -hmm. than his own wife. Like this, that they had this connection that felt so important and so deep. And then this guy just disappeared and it's like, well, he was hiking and he just never unhiked. He never came back. <laughs> And, yeah. um, and then he is actually discovered later, which is, um, it's all of these people in some way, like something about them, or they actually are just fully de deported and not in their graves. Right. As one and and um, you can't resist the metaphor, right? Of it just kind of exactly. rising from the past, like the past reemerges from the ice. Exactly. And that's that. That's why the nudges make it feel like a novel is because they have that kind of novelistic, like, ah, oh, that's an echo of this other thing, you know, like the novelistic yeah. feeling. And I don't want to spend all the time on this kind of like extra textual uh, speculation, but I, I am curious what you two think about um, like a Zabald versus a, a John Degata, right? Like in, in my estimation, again, I'm kind of, I'm, I pulled this sort of like 90% figure out of Thin air. Like I think that like 90% of this is based in fact, and probably 90% of a John Degata essay is based in fact as well. And then, but the freedom that he wants with that extra 10% for like artful purposes, um, he thinks he still gets to call his work nonfiction, whereas Sebald gets called fiction. Like, what do you think about that distinction? Is that is that a moral distinction or is it just artistic? I mean, I think that John Degata, who's not a great writer, wants his crappy work to have the truth value that readers will bring to it because they believe that it is true. Um, uh, and so, but he also wants to do all the aesthetic monkeying around so that he can have the ego gratification within the own work. And it's a totally fraudulent project. Um, and I think that's really different from Zabald, who's a brilliant writer who is writing fiction that is making you question its own boundaries between nonfiction and fiction. Tagata doesn't want you to do that. There aren't gestures in that essay that Harper's next that make you wonder whether it's true or not. Really? He wants you to think it's true and then also come up with all this crap to, so that he can say what he wants to say. I mean, one of the things that he wanted fact checked in that was some coincidence to give the event more meaning that turned out to be completely made up. It's like, well, actually then the, 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 the job of a nonfiction writer is to look at that event and mine its actual materials for meaning, not impose a meaning that makes you feel like you're so brilliant. 
Um, and so I think there's a, I think there's a real, um, uh, and of course I should say, of course, nonfiction writers impose meaning to some extent. We choose what to include and what not to include and all sorts of things like that. But that is different from purposely making stuff up and then trying to hide it. And so, you know, like, I just think they're completely different projects. A Degata's project is not interesting or provocative and Zabold's project is. That's 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 my take on it. I could yell about this for a very long time, so I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> I was hoping somebody would take that bait. Wow! I know, I know. You were like, mm, yes. I should have been like Tom Hardy in the in the GIF and like tapped my ceiling. And like, that's bait. <laughs> uh, so I actually i I have a thing to say about that. That that's part of it's going to be longer. It's going to be longer even than what I think. That I think, and that is, I think that the fact that he's making stuff up that is not about the Holocaust. It's like that really matters. So okay, the the first time I read a Zebald book, um, it was in a college class, and my professor said it's about the Holocaust, and you can tell because he never mentions it, and I was like. Are you allowed to do that? You know, um, and it felt like there's so many things that are about the Holocaust. We never knew. It actually is. Is very obviously true that like that the way that he does not describe any of the horrors of the Holocaust directly is, in fact, a way of leaving them unreconstructed and therefore morally serious and. I think that um, the question of how does he achieve the effects that he achieves is um, it's like artistically interesting to read something and to figure out like how, do, how is this effect achieved, especially if it's an unusual effect. But I also think the fact that this came out, I think the German was 1992, right? And the English translation is 1996. Um, it's one of the last... I think truly morally serious works of Holocaust fiction that at least that I know of that's like in kind of like popular mainstream, there's a huge turn right around these exact years. I would almost say in between the English patient book and the movie, I think, which um, maybe I'm getting my years wrong. I'm, the English patient book is 1992 and the movie is 1996. And I think that, just that difference between like i think the book was quite morally serious and then i think the movie was kind of like you put attractive actors in the roles and suddenly it's like how in love are they world war ii that's how in love they are and then once that move was allowed <laughs> it's like nobody could resist making that move it's like either world war ii is the backdrop of a love story or it's like kind of childish it's like it's something that like the holocaust is something that happens to children in uh, in a like a childish mode and i i made a list of all of the things that i think of in, in this like i think of it as like holocaust kitsch it's like I'm not trying yeah, when to. Yeah, was, when was Schindler's List? Was that like 95 or 96 yeah, or something? Yeah, so, so he actually. And has then that... Life is Beautiful is like 98 mm, or 99, okay. which I'm sure is one of the ones you are thinking of. Yes, Life is Beautiful, the X Men with um, the uh, Magneto. Like, he has like, there's like a Holocaust origin story for Magneto. And I put Everything is Illuminated, The History of Love, Boy in the Striped Pajamas, Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Grand Budapest Hotel, Jojo Rabbit. I feel like, and then in the 90s, there's like Mouse, the graphic novel, which I think if this hadn't taken this huge turn toward people, like once you are actually going to represent the Holocaust in your art, there's a generational shift away from moral seriousness. And I don't know that people knew that that's what they were doing when they were originally doing some of these things, but I, I think don't think that, mouse is a shift away from moral seriousness. No, I, I, I don't think it is. I, I think that it made some, uh, narrative and visual representations of the Holocaust feel allowed that then other artists used, even with very good intentions in ways that I think it got a ball rolling toward childishness and there never wasn't a time 
in literature of the Holocaust that the question of childhood and the, the idea of this happening to children or the need to address children wasn't in the forefront of um, at least some authors' minds. Um, there's Diary of a Young Girl, obviously, the Anne Frank, um, and there's um, Charlotte's Web, I think, uh, is a Holocaust book that is both invested in speaking directly to children and moral seriousness. Well, may- could it be that, you know, once it's kind of processed by the generation that had living memory of the event, then the next generation can't help but sort of reproduce some of that version. So um, rather than processing the processing <laughs> processing the event itself they're sort of processing the process and um it's like they're producing cliches whether it's intentional or not exactly Um, yeah and i think that like the uh, there's this zebel quote um from this the guardian piece that you sent to lisa um said um he he loathes the term holocaust literature it's a dreadful idea that you can have a subgenre and make a specialty out of it. It's grotesque, just sort of what we're saying. Um, and he's doubtful about recreations. It can only become an obscenity like Schindler's List, where you know that the extras who get mown down will be drinking Coca-Cola after the filming. Um, I think that the amount he's able to maintain moral seriousness when it was not his experience. It was not his first-hand experience. That his first-hand experience of his generation is of an absence of people and of images that are kind of impossible to reconcile, like a, a cultural absences and specific, like personal absences of people that you know are like in your family history and then they don't quite. They're not quite there. And so I think that's really interesting that the way that he uses the actual absence of the Holocaust to not recreate it and then images that are kind of unreadable, even in the text, it's like a black and white picture of a house from far away. It's not. And and I read that he, to some extent, that's, that's a little manufactured that he would, you know, not always, but he would often sort of like photocopy a photograph over and over. So it became a copy of a copy of a copy to introduce um, murkiness and unreliability in an image that might not have had so much originally. Like Richter with his uh, squeegee. Hey, <laughs> just like, just like Gerhard Richter. What a transition. What a, what a transition. But wait, before we go, Mouse is the story of an adult Holocaust survivor. <laughs> it was originally serial, serialized in a magazine for adults. It is not about children. It is not for children. It is using the device of anthropomorphic animals to complex ends, but I would not include it on your list personally. Okay. Okay. Gerhard Richter. No, I, I, um, I only put it on my list because I felt like it was the beginning of something that turned into a, a set of cliches, not that it. Oh yeah. Yeah. That makes to, sense. Cause it's like, Oh, this thing that's playing around with childish that, iconography. It's like, why don't we just take the child part and leave all the interesting stuff out? Well, it's kind of like, interesting. You know, it's like, it's um, yeah. I, I just think that people got used to representing the Holocaust in certain ways that um, the longer we go from lived experience, the more those become um, grotesque cliches. And yeah, like yeah, when he's no, I agree with obscenities, that. I'm like, yes, they are obscenities. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. Uh, so Gerhard Richter and his squeegee. He, yeah, no, so this is the thing, is that he has an extremely similar origin story, that he's also a, a German, also encountering the Holocaust, mainly through images and through absences and through lack of explanation and through um, distorting images in his own artwork that have sort of coded and hidden meanings of violence and horror. I thought it was interesting that they were both encountering that era of uh, German history in what seems like at least on the surface and even even a little below the surface, pretty similar ways. Right. Although Richter, I mean, Richter w- was slash is 
or attempts to be very protective of his autobiography um, and does and does not want a lot of it once once a lot of control over how much of it is is known there's this uh, uh, amazing article about the i can never pronounce that guy's name because he has like 17 of them the fellow who directed the lives of others and also directed a movie that is a romana clay about gerhard richter's life uh because he knew gerhard richter's life because they were friends essentially and the relationship was destroyed over the fact that someone made a movie that revealed even in a fictional way uh, uh biographical um details about him uh, and disturbing ones i mean there's yeah very disturbing ones yeah yeah yeah, I mean, there was a fascinating line in that profile where the director said something about, I, th I think it was after they had already had this kind of falling out, where he said, um, oh, Richter and I both kind of want to like be able to hide behind, he used the word hide, like the fictionality in our works, the fact that, you know, they were basing their material on um, real people, but obfuscating that. And that's, you know, that's, that's so Zabald. I don't think that Zabald would would use the word hide at all. But um, but I just thought that was interesting, that idea of like um exculpability that you're <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And I I do um I do wonder if you all picked up on, especially in that like very at the very end of the last section of the book, like Ugh. there's this real ambivalence when um, you know, when like the narrator character kind of breaks back into the text. And, you know, maybe it's quote unquote Zabald and it's not really him, but it feels so much like the author just sort of admitting, like, I, I don't know if I should be writing this book. You know, he talks about like just the fraughtness of really writing at all, but, you know, especially this kind of writing. And, you know, it feels to me like, even though he's, he's been writing a book about the Holocaust where he barely talks about the Holocaust, there's still this sense that he's like res almost resurrected these like evil spirits at the same time that he's tried to um, create a memorial to, to the victims. And that like, you know, you can't really talk about one without talking about the other. Right. Well, I mean, cause where the, where the book, it doesn't end. It's actually it's sort of penultimate gesture is him at the graveyard, right? Staring at these, these graves, only one of which has a body in it because everyone else died, uh, uh, in the camps um or They're elsewhere like that there's only very few stones left at the graves showing you know that the people yeah. had the graves because there just aren't enough jews left to visit right and he says um let's see i stayed in the jewish cemetery till the afternoon walking up and down the rows of graves reading the names of the dead but it was only when i was about to leave that i discovered a more recent gravestone not far from the locked gate on which were the names of Lily and Lazarus Landsberg and of Fritz, Fritz and Louisa Ferber. I assume Ferber's uncle Leo had had it erected there. The inscription says that Lazarus Landsberg died in Theresienstadt in 1942 and that Fritz and Louisa were deported at their fate unknown in November 1941. Only Lily, who took her own life, lies in that grave. I stood before it for some time, not knowing what I should think. But before I left, I placed a stone on the grave according to custom. And so there's this really complicated moment where he doesn't know what else to do. Like the only thing he can do is actually borrow another culture's custom in order to try to pay respect to it because that's all that's left. And then it immediately transitions to him. Actually, he cuts the trip short and he leaves because he feels in a way that... Um, uh, well, he says, I felt increasingly that the mental impoverishment and lack of memory that marked the Germans and the efficiency with which they had cleaned everything up were beginning to affect my head and my nerves. And so this profound sense of like, yes, uh, is it even correct that I do this project? What am I supposed to think about it? And I think that's part of why the book is 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 so unsettling. I mean, I, I I told both of you earlier that when I finished the book, I had this weird, I've never had this happen before. I finished the book, I closed it, I set it down to go do something else. And then like a few minutes later, burst into tears. Not, you know, often if I'm going to cry at a book, which is not that often, it's like, you know, you get to the final image and you're just like, and then, then, you, uh, then you burst into tears or whatever. But here it just like hit me in this weird, weird way and i just felt exhausted all day yeah i think that he ends up with kind of a paradox which is like the only way to adequately remember the holocaust is to never speak about it uh, to leave it as like a thing that is impossible to describe truthfully mm -hmm. um and that 
is also the problem he's having is that there's just this giant absence in the center of life. Yeah, that's uh, interesting that he, you know, was sort of trying to correct what he called a conspiracy of silence that he grew up with, with his parents and that whole generation never talking about it. Um, but then, you know, the, the solution is sort of slightly less silence. Yeah. <laughs> and that still, you know, ends up feeling like this, this double bind, like, and like when you get to the, the rings of Saturn, it, in that book, it's like this, this Sable character has had a mental breakdown, essentially. Like it's, it's destroying his mind in the same way that it's destroying the four it's not really just four because there's all, all these embedded narratives, but the four characters and the immigrants, you know, all of them by kind of resurfacing these, these memories from their youth older and their older years are kind of driven mad by it. Um, yeah. I was looking at the, um, I guess third to last, are we saying anti-penultimate about this like gesture? <laughs> <laughs> sorry i'm like laughing inappropriately right now it's really sad when he's it's when he's reading this um this old journal um and and i was thinking at just artistically what is he doing that is making this so absolutely devastating because it's just a girl describing a pleasant life really um but every single detail is just like a knife through your heart with just the sadness of fate and um and the way that her life is going to go and um i was thinking about all the details that he's including are things like cleaning the house before passover and um somebody fixes a weather vane and they're they're like eating fish but she feels very sort of tender and seen by the dead fish's eyes as she's eating and there's all of these images of just being careful and long-term planning, care, cleaning things, that just the idea of carefully cleaning something, knowing that it will be destroyed soon, is so upsetting. The idea of being worried about animals' pain. I think that he's choosing, I, I guess, ways of describing human life and um, carefulness about one another, tenderness toward one another that felt um, just very far from cliche, I guess. I think it's also something about chance that makes it so devastating because if Louisa was a character in a novel, um, like a truly 100% fictional capital N yeah. novel. Yeah. Um, you would know from the beginning, oh, this is a character in this this novel. Like this, this character was invented to make you feel something. So there's this level of manipulation that, um, you know, if, if the novel's good, you get past. But in this book, there's this feeling because of the construction where the narrator is so close to the author and chances upon a document that's like a real relative of somebody that he really knew. Um, and the fact that it's so devastating and beautiful, however fictionalized that, that document, the diary is, um, there's that, that sense of just, just delicate contingency that anywhere you lift a stone, you know, you could stumble upon a life like this. Um, you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to invent it from whole cloth. Like these real lives existed. And in that level of beautiful, real detail. And there's something about that that I think makes it. Yeah. Just, like it's, it's, it feels like discovering something in your own home. Yeah. Yeah. The, the detail of, of saying like, you know, take, take care not to, read too late at night because it's not healthy. And you're like, oh, these are the people who aren't even in their graves. Um, and then there's, oh, but then there was the one um, mad woman, um, Katinka, 
who knits something that she'll never finish while walking around a tree. And that, like, it has the feeling of portentous fictional image. We haven't talked about Ambrose at all. Let's talk about Ambrose. Poor Ambrose. <laughs> oh, the poor Ambrose. The contagious madness of the 20th century, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the, as they one by one go, go mad at having to uh, reckon first with World War One and and then with 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 World War Two, um, yeah. Did you all have this experience reading this book? Where I don't know. I I, I do think Zabal can be very evanescent. Um, it's like like when I finished The Rings of Saturn, I remember a few little details and I remember the feel of the book and the style of the book, but. Like, it's full of facts, and I don't remember that many facts I read in that book. It just kind of evaporates. Um, and, re- and reading this, I kind of felt like each narrative, I think being longer than the others, um, sorry, than the previous one, like, it would just sort of subsume it in my mind. Like, <laughs> like when I read the Paul chapter, I was like, oh, I love the Paul chapter. But then I read the Ambrose chapter, and I was like, oh, no, the Ambrose chapter is my favorite, <laughs> you know? And then I read the last chapter, and I was like, oh, like, now that's almost all we've been talking about. Like, it's just, it just, the way it kind of, like, digs back. <laughs> that's so true. Yeah. Yeah. Did you feel that way? I think, did you feel like... I definitely felt, I got about halfway through the 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 fourth narrative, and was like, what was up with Henry? What was up with Henry Selwyn again? Like I actually stopped. I forgot all about Selwyn. Then went back to like, oh my, he was their landlord, and then he killed himself. Like I just really had this moment where I was like, I do not remember the first part of this. Well, there's just so much. It's just like silks layering on top. It's very strange for a book that is only 240 pages long to be so. dense and I'm, I'm worried that sounds like I'm telling people not to read it but it's not that it's that, that it's so pressurized it's so like wh- whatever the coal of life experiences has been yeah. really compressed into diamonds and so you you get so full of it that actually you can't really hold all of it inside of you at once like I could totally see why Catherine <laughs> got to the end and was like zoop, back to the beginning <laughs> yeah. you know um and then you start remembering little little things from each one, whether it's the, the journey to the Holy Land that his uh, distant uncle goes through, or, um, you know, for me in the second one, it was the way that, um, although he never says it, this is why I, I, this is why I remember it is because it's unsaid, actually, that trains are perverted by their use in the Shoah. And so that, and so this guy, that's actually his great heartbreak in some ways is that trains have betrayed him on some level. And then, so he kills himself by lying down on the train tracks. Right. And so like, that was the thing that really stuck with me about the second narrative was this perversion of the trains, which also actually to circle back as this book does to something Catherine was saying earlier, you know, I thought about why I was reading that, like, Oh, and in 20 years, do they have to have a, will there be an editor's note, like a foot, an end note for this chapter, you know, in some Penguin Classics edition where it's like, by the way, the trains thing is a Holocaust reference, right? Because it's like in the 90s, you read that and you know immediately that's what it is, right? And I, and I started to wonder about part of why he's able to do what he does in these books is that there is a presumption of certain shared contexts with the reader. Like he is pretty sure when the reader sees butterfly man, they're going to think Nabokov. And then he makes sure by saying like, like Nabokov later, but you know, he's pretty sure that the train tracks are going to make you think about the Holocaust. He's pretty sure. And actually this one, I don't, I had to look this up. I, I don't think I have that. He's pretty sure you'll know who Max Ferber is sort of a, stand in for right you know and so it's interesting to think about like as we lose these contexts you can see why as we get more distant from the holocaust uh, our art and entertainment about it relies increasingly on cliche and in repeating the gestures of well-known earlier works because that's actually what we remember because we're losing the actual facts of it and the actual history and we don't actually have those shared contexts so i think that was why that second one stuck with me 
uh, uh, so powerfully is it made me wonder about the future of the of it of this book it, itself in some way. It makes me think of this book that I read um, when I was researching my last book, The Unreality of Memory. It was called Frames of Remembrance, and it was by a Jewish scholar, and it was about this kind of idea of quote unquote memory work and arguments over what the right way to remember something like the Holocaust is um, essentially so that, you know, history doesn't repeat itself. And in a way it comes down to feeling like there's no, there's no right way to remember something like the Holocaust. Like you, um, you can't not remember it, but uh, yeah, any, any memorialization we do is, is dangerous. It carries risks. Yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, when you even, I mean, when you try to impose meaning on an experience that vast, you are necessarily going to discard other meanings, you know? Um, uh, and so it, it is a very dangerous, it is a really dangerous project, right? I mean, we, we, we Americans have experienced some of that in the way, the sort of maddening ways our culture has memorialized 9-11, that you think about sort of like what the narrative is that emerges from that and what meanings are left out, you know? Um, well, I, so yeah, I actually was thinking that one of the things about, um, you know, about trains and about that implicit meaning that this book is carrying that the reader has to instinctively understand what a train means to these people um, is that there are a lot of genocides that need to be remembered and that are extremely bad. And this is one that has a lot of um, markers of the industrialized middle class associated with it. And I think that those are often seen as um, kind of that they're like marketed as indicators of safety and of um, like social mobility. And I think, and then just very literal mobility, like trains and ovens and shoes and things like that, um, that it's like the implicit promise of the industrialized middle class is that uh, if you kind of do everything right, you will kind of be all right. And um, and then just reversing every single one of those symbols into the most grotesque possible reversal, like the doctor in the white coat, the train, like all of these, these things being reversed so- Bug spray. Hard being reversed so horrifically. Um, I think that, that in some ways those, um, those implicit meanings of those new technologies being the way that they can be reversed into Holocaust Memorial, it does actually work. Because if we were talking about um, the genocide of um, Native Americans, who we are talking about slavery, a lot of the symbols of those things are th um, symbols that are first used to dehumanize. That there's no kind of trick saying like, these are real people. They're people who wear shoes that look just like your shoes. Um, <laughs> it's like, look at their shoes. They're completely different than your shoes. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that there's, there's some... There's some way in which those signals he's using are actually very effective. And we shouldn't have weddings at plantations. You know, like, because I think that, that there is, that there's a problem with, with plantations looking like the place that people might want to get married. And that, yeah. that, that that hasn't been effectively switched in people's, people's, some people's cultural imagination yeah um yeah i mean i I'm, I'm thinking a lot about this in relation to how do we write and talk and make art about slavery um 
which of course was a lot longer ago than the Holocaust. Um, but the Holocaust is already long enough ago that it doesn't feel real to people um, who don't have, you know, any li living relatives who, who lived through it. Um, it's just, it's so terrifying how quickly the past recedes and it is even seems like it doesn't really exist. And especially when it's not even past, like, you know, there's very good, uh, very good arguments for why, you know, slavery turns into many of our modern structures right now. And that it's difficult to not fall into um, that kind of cartoonishness and cliche, even mm -hmm. entirely like, and I mean, I think that the, 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 uh, the things I was listing as Holocaust kitsch. Like, I think they're very well-intentioned, many of them. Um, I just, I think that the slavery equivalent of those are, can also be very well-intentioned and still be kind of obscene in the same way. I feel like we haven't maybe talked enough about the photographs. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Maybe we have. There's... No, you should talk about the photographs. I mean, they're, they are quite gnomic, you know, they are, they are, it's interesting because, you know, I, 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 I love multimedia shit and I read lots of graphic <laughs> novels and I feel like I know visual art well enough. Um, and so you go in and you're like, oh yeah, I have photos <laughs> and it's fiction. I've read Carol Maso. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, checkmate Zabalt. And then you're just like, wait, what? It's, it's like just a picture of a door? You know, or, or, you know, whatever it is, you know, there's times in which what photos are included um, feel purely arbitrary. I mean, oh, there's yeah. times where, they, you know, and then there's times where they, they have the obvious purpose of underlining the supposed, because I'm not going to assume anything's true, the supposed non-fictional uh, nature of some of these accounts. And then sometimes you're just like, what, what is this? What, what even is this? Why, yeah, I, why am I looking at a barrel right now? Or you know whatever it is. <laughs> I I totally agree, and I think um, that sense of arbitrariness is even stronger in in the Rings of Saturn, actually. Where um, there's there's fewer photographs in that book. I want to say I haven't actually counted, but I would I would bet that there's fewer photographs. It feels like a lot fewer, and they are less obviously related to the text. Like it's not as easy to sort of guess what the photos container refer to. Mm -hmm. But in the immigrants, like the, the, the photo that I keep like coming back to and feeling hop up, hung up on is the fake photograph from, from the newspaper. That's on, it's on page 184 of the new directions paperback. And it's the one where it's, you know, it's supposedly the burning of the books, except they couldn't actually get a good photograph of the burning of the books because it was nighttime. And so they took a photo of just a crowd and then like, you know, whatever the equivalent of Photoshopping was and Photoshopped in smoke um, and how um, whoever relates this, somebody says this to, uh, it looks like it's Uncle Leo took this photograph as a sign. They're like, well, now, well, now we can't believe anything in the papers. Like, maybe they're making it all up. Um, and how that feels like some kind of linchpin in this book. Like, suddenly you're like, oh, wait. <laughs> are there other photos in this book that are doctored? You know? And and I again, I have to bring this biography again. Cover your ears, Isaac. But Take my hand. Ah! He, I, I, I learned that he, um, that he being W.G. Sebald, like forged the, the little diary, Ambrose's travel diary. Like that's his handwriting. And he I took, he took the photocopies. Um, <laughs> I, I don't even want to know if, if it's true that I this uh, photo of, the um, alarm clock that makes tea, if that's fake, just don't tell, <laughs> don't tell me. I think that's a real thing. You can, I, I Googled teas made. Those, those really exist. It's incredible. I mean, yeah, it's, 
There is a weird, well, it's not weird. It, 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 it's totally part of the artistic project, but there is a real, um, as straightforward as it can sometimes feel like he's being, there's a real slipperiness, um, to it in a lot of ways, including like, again, you know, it, it sort of reads like nonfiction, but it's not like anyone ever calls him by his name or his, his name is never revealed. And so you're like, Oh, is this a fictional stand in? But the other thing is, um, and I, I have to assume this is very purposeful. If you're not reading like in like very closely, it is really easy to get lost between like, is he telling this story? Is the person he's talking to telling the story? Is the person he's talking to relating a story that a third person told them? Is it a written account? Like what, who is actually narrating or whose narration is being paraphrased here? Um, early on in the book, he all, almost always starts a new paragraph when the point of view that he's relating changes. And then by the time we get to the fourth, it's all over the place. He has these multi-page long paragraphs and you sort of start swimming in not knowing whose account it really is. And then he starts sort of joking with you about it. I think with these little parentheticals where it's like, as her diary said, which sat before me and you're like, that is like a, like what, what suddenly Dickensian sort of, you know, structures are coming in here. And so, so, you know, the way he plays around with that, uh, was, was so thrilling to me. And, and there's a weird way in which the photos kind of do that too, even though they're separated, you know, there's like, here's a photo of an Oak tree. And this passage is about an Oak tree. Oak tree is not actually that important, but I've put a photo of it in here. And then you're like, what's going, you know, where is this, you know, how do these things even interrelate um, that I thought was really wild. Yeah. He affects this real kind of mind meld both between like the narrator and the narratees, <laughs> the, the, the people that he's speaking to and for um, and with us, because I think the a thing that the images do is confuse your mental images like um like what i remember from the book i often remember mm -hmm. visually i mean this is true whenever i read and sometimes it's hard to remember if i'm remembering my own mental image that i called to mind while i was reading like one of the images that stuck with me was was paul writing through the emporium and and seeing like a rainbow case of thread, which that's not a photo in the book. Um, like, but I remember that more clearly than most of the photos mm -hmm. in the book. And like, mm -hmm. and it ends with a description of a photograph, but that photograph isn't in the book. Again, like um, seemingly arbitrarily, but, um, but it's so powerful not to end with that photo. Yes. I, and to just, I, I did the audiobook. I didn't know where there were going to be photos or not until I went and oh, right. read the paper that copy. So and I was that like, oh, so I'm, I'm going to get that photo. And then I was like, the photo's not there. No. It's not there. Yeah, it's, it's like it's sort of this master manipulation. <laughs> it is. Um, I also did it think make you feel that memory uh, often struck you as a kind of dumbness? <laughs> did, did, did it make your head feel heavy and giddy as if one were not looking back down the receding perspectives of time, but rather down on the earth from a great height? Something yeah. like that, Isaac. I mean, yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also think that he does not do certain things that um, maybe are more um, like writer tricks to differentiate characters and maybe those feel pretty constructed and have their own vocabulary of cliche, but they also help you keep characters separate in your mind. You know, like I don't, I wouldn't say that I know what the texture of thought is that would help me know which character is experiencing something. Right. Like they're yeah, not, and it, I think we're supposed to have them experience them all filtered through the narrator's consciousness and memory. Like in a, you know, like a cusp novel. Yeah. I just don't, I don't have a sense of the kind of thing that one of them would do. You know, like I have a sense of the things that they would do biographically. Like one of them's a painter, one of them's a teacher. So if someone's teaching, it's probably the teacher, you know. Uh, but I don't have a sense of um, like a 
a texture of character. It's much right. more like very basic human stuff, like I clean the right. House and I'm holiday. I'm agreeing that I I think that's an an intentional mediation oh, for of sure. access. Yeah, yeah. Um, because you know he the author only had so much access to these people that he was basing the book on. And he, you know, I, I feel like at this point we, we tend to think of Sebald as just like universally beloved, which he mostly is, but he, he has had critics who, um, who thought he was, he was claiming too much identification with, with his subjects which I think is interesting. What, what would, what I, I actually don't understand this critique. What, <laughs> what, I mean, too much identification in what way? Um, that he's like appropriating their, their stories or something. To... Well, I don't, I don't want to, I mean, that, um, that makes it sound like very 2021 discourse yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's not that, this isn't something that I just like saw somebody say on Twitter. I think, you know, like serious critics have taken issue with the level to which, um, I mean, I didn't read it this way, but I, I, I think that you could read the cemetery scene as, um, you know, being sentimentalizing. Like, again, I, I don't read it this way, but there's a part where, you know, he says like, I, he left the cemetery feeling very upset you know, he, I'm being, I'm being very blurry about Sable versus the narrator, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah, totally. Um, he, he says like, I, I felt like I had lost her. Um, and yeah, I guess, you know, some, some readers, I don't think the majority of readers have had a sense that that's like a bridge too far. Yeah. Cause it's somebody that exists in his imagination but also in real life, but the person in his imagination is not the person in real life. Um, you know, we were talking about um, uh, hokey book dedications, and um, <laughs> right, I don't yes. want to insult any listeners, but um, there was there was one that was something like, you know, to everyone who's ever struggled or not felt seen or whatever, like this book is dedicated to you, and it's kind of like... I see you. It ended with <laughs> I see you. Um, I don't feel seen by that. I feel like you are just imagining a character. And even if I do have some of those experiences, I don't feel respected by somebody imagining a character who has had the problems I've had in my life. And, you know, like it doesn't necessarily make me feel like I have spoken if they spoke, imagining that they're me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally, totally. I like, mean, to me, it's like, you know, I mean, I just finished this project where I researched the life of Stanislavski in, in great detail, and I felt super bummed when I wrote the part of my book about his death. Like, I was yeah. really bummed. It was really sad to write. And like, when I'm sort of like uh, setting him on the canoe and then lighting it on fire, you know, when I get to that page of the book, that's not actually how he died. He died of a heart attack, but you know, the, um, but you know, like that was like, it, it was a bummer. Like the, the, the thing that I, I, I not that I, I shouldn't respond to a critique that I haven't read, but the thing that it's like, when you deeply in, engage with a subject, you become connected with it. And it makes sense that after reading someone's diary, whether the narrator did or Zabal did or not, you know, after having this sort of deep engagement with their diary, when you came upon their headstone, it, it would have a profound emotional impact on you. That's, that's part of what it is to be a, a, an artist in this world, I think, a narrative artist anyway. And so, you know, that, that, makes, that makes sense. I also feel like the book is incredibly emotionally restrained on the narrator's part. And so I think he really is like, I'm holding it all in except for this one scene that's like two pages long and then I'm going right back. Like even when he's talking about his own great uncle, uh, because I know you want to talk about the third narrative, which we keep neglecting. Uh, 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 you know, when it when it gets there, he's like, I actually didn't know him that well. Anyway, you know, like, like I, I met him once. I don't really, you know, um, and now I'm going to relate to you everything I know about his life story. So, you know, there is a real way that he's trying to be as restrained as possible and not be um, 
sentimental. And so I think you you can get away with one emotional moment. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think it's incredibly restrained. Yeah, yeah. It really, it, that's why that moment is so striking. Um, I think, you know, I had to do these these tweets about the book as I was as I was reading it live. And the, the metaphor I used was it's like street noise breaking through into your dream. Um, it's it's it feels like there's just the emotions are so powerful that they just, you know, they sort of um, they burst the bubble. Yeah. And it avoids that. I mean, I think that that's part of the moral seriousness of the book, that it that the love that is described um, in the this diary, for instance, it's not like the greatest, most powerful continent-spanning love that only uh, World War II could break apart. It's like, um, you know, he proposes, she doesn't know what to say, she blushes, she nods, you know, it's like, it's very sweet. And then it endures past his death and she misses him and that that's it's that emotional restraint that um sort of prevents it from i think falling into like more bombastic cliches and felt the way about again sorry to bring ambrose back but ambrose and cosmo i I feel like their relationship relationship is so um just so subtly handled and you know he, he he there's just such a light touch and he lets it be an open question you know, whether they were gay and a couple or just, or, you know, gay and not a couple, you know, just, just friends, or if, if there was something, um, something about their relationship that they had to hide, that's unclear. As you said before, you know, there's, there's always something that has to be hidden yeah. in every narrative, but it's just so beautiful when at the at the very end of the diary when they're when they're lying in a bed together and it's it is still ambiguous but um but like impossible not to see love there yeah Mm -hmm. yeah um it reminds me of um Bronisława Nijinska's early memoirs um she is the sister of uh, Vaslav Nijinsky and a uh, dancer and choreographer and um, epic person in her own right. Uh, she has these incredibly detailed childhood memories that she describes in her memoirs. And a lot of her childhood memories are of um, being worried about animals maybe getting hurt and uh, exploring like what is behind this building. Oh, it's a pile of garbage but there's chickens, you know? Um, and I think that that scale, like in, in her case, that that scale really allows you to understand what is the feeling of being a person in this different time and place. Uh, it's like a very untraumatized childhood if you're able to like fret about whether a pig is gonna get hurt in a circus. Um, you know, there's like a very unhard heart. And so then you can kind of, uh, you understand later suffering that does, you know, it's the course of growing up in a fairly brutal environment. Um, She does change, but you understand how much things feel to her because of these descriptions of kind of her ordinary life as a young child. Um, I think that his emotional restraint in some of those like love stories and things like that, but then talking about the concern over whether staying up late reading will be bad for your health, like that that kind of calibrates you into like how much do these people care about each other? Well, they don't want somebody's eyesight to get worse because of reading late at night, you know. And and that that actually is I think a, it works really well as a calibration of how much human uh, care is in this in this world that he's describing. Yeah, exactly. Wait, I I have a question that I actually did want to ask Catherine. So, Catherine, so here is my question: When you got to the end of this book, the second time because you read it twice in a row, um, 
did it cause you to revise your your long-held and frequently stated on lit century opinion that everything flows from World War I to think that perhaps some things instead flow from World War II? Nothing's going to make you change it. Nothing's, it's never going to change. Or does the inclusion of Ambrose, was the inclusion of Ambrose be like, when you got to that, you're like, see, it's World War I. It's World War I. I told you. No, I, I think that the changes at World War I, the requirement of having a military industrial complex in every country that expects to maintain sovereignty means that national borders are going to change uh, technological changes, they're going to accelerate, um, and that's going to mean the social order is going to change. Obviously, World War II, I think conventional historians, not just podcast historians, uh, agree that, I, I think, right, that uh, World War II in many ways is sort of figuring out tensions that were left over at the end of World War I. Um, but I think that many of these themes of memory and the growing expanse between how the world is when he's a child and when he's an adult and when he's aging um, and then the the way that the, the world of even the previous generation is disappearing even faster as those people die um, I think all of those are very 20th century themes because of the um, because of the things that changed around World War One, and um, I think you know, probably in the 19th century, it's not that there aren't people who are concerned with memory and how society changes. Um, I think that those are less major themes in the 19th century uh, in these traditions. And I think if you look back in the 17th, 18th century or earlier, I think there's more concern with with premature death, with like gather ye rosebuds while you may kinds of things. But um, I think that feeling that society is changing around you faster than you can really comprehend. And um, I think that's a really 20th century thing for all the reasons that I always say on this podcast. Thanks for asking. That was our conversation about the emigrants. Thank you to Isaac and Elisa, as always, to Adam Bear for our music and the people at Literary Hub for hosting us. We love hearing from listeners, so if you'd like to write to us, we're at LitCenturyPod on Twitter and LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. We'd also be very grateful if you want to rate and review us as well. Thank you so much, and goodbye till September. September.